Well, if you asked me to name my favorite book in the Old Testament, I wouldn't be able to choose between Psalms and Isaiah. They're both so precious to me. But if you shook me awake in the middle of the night and said, tell me what's your favorite chapter in the Old Testament without hesitation, I'd say Isaiah 40. And that's where we're going to park this Advent season for the next three weeks. You'll recognize right away themes from Handel's Messiah as I start reading, because that great oratorio begins with these words from Isaiah 40. And let's worship God as he opens his magnificent word to us, verses 1 through 11 of this great chapter. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The longer you live, the more you learn to expect that your life is going to be mingled with disappointment. Hardly a week goes by when disappointment doesn't knock at the door of our hearts. Sometimes it's just mild, ordinary, common disappointments. Like when you were expecting Giordano's pizza for supper and you get a salad instead. <laughs> or you think you're going to go to the beach and enjoy a nice sunny day and then it just pours rain all day long. Or when you think you're going to get a refund on your taxes and you end up owing money to the IRS. But sometimes the disappointments run deep. They pierce our hearts. They threaten to poison us. 
friend you trusted turns his back on you and ignores you and gossips about you to others. When the person to whom you gave yourself in covenant love decides they want another lover. When the job you've poured yourself into is suddenly terminated. When the doctor tells you in the prime of your life, you have cancer. When you've done your best to impart your faith to your children when they are young, bringing them to church, teaching them to read the Bible and to pray and love the gospel of Jesus. And then they grow up and they're lured away and enticed by all kinds of worldly distractions. And you can see that the trajectory they're on is going to lead to pain and self-destruction. That's deep disappointment. And the worst disappointment of all is when you fail to live up to your own expectations for yourself. When you find yourself in a deep, dark cave of your own sin, your own failure, and you realize, I can't find my way out of this. You know that everyone who truly becomes a Christian is someone who has had to face disappointment with himself or herself. Jesus cannot become precious to you until you've really realized the truth about who you are and how much you need a savior. So what do you do when you're disappointed in the world? What do you do when you're disappointed in the people in your life? What do you do especially when you're disappointed with yourself? Someone has written, as long as we hold on to it, Disappointment will wrap itself around our heart like a great snake. And the tighter we hold on to it, the tighter it will grip us. You know that's true, don't you? You've experienced that. There's a lot of people in the world today, and there are some here in this room who are being suffocated by disappointment. You're holding on to it so tightly, it's squeezing all the joy and all the hope and all the life out of you. And God's people in Isaiah's day were like that. And we can understand why they were like that if we read the end of chapter 39. Their king, Hezekiah, has just been told that days are coming when the Babylonians are going to invade Jerusalem, they're going to lay siege to the city. They're going to pillage it and plunder it and carry away God's people from the promised land where God promised through Abraham that they would be prosperous and fruitful and he's gonna bring them into exile in Babylon. And he's gonna take some of their own sons and make them eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's disappointing news. And, and even worse, when the king Hezekiah hears that this is how God is going to bring judgment on his people for their sins, he, he realizes, well, that's not going to happen for a few years yet, and I'm going to probably outlive that experience. And so he says, well, it's fine with me. At least there's going to be peace and security in my days. That's hugely disappointing. When the leaders of the people care only about their own prosperity... And they don't have any concern for the people under their care. 
So if you look at the end of Isaiah chapter 40, you'll see how this snake of disappointment is coiling itself around the hearts of God's people and how they're responding. In verse 27, look at it. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. This is the prevailing mood among the people in Isaiah's time. They keep repeating it. God no longer notices me. God's ignoring me. God keeps dismissing my case. I'm filing a claim and he's not paying attention. I'm at the bottom of the barrel with God. And that's where we always tend to go when we hold on to our disappointments. We start blaming God. We start assuming that his thoughts toward us are harsh. We think that because we've rejected him so many times, he must have rejected us. But here's the thing with disappointment. Disappointment is always a premature conclusion. I remember a time a while back when Kate sent me an article. We were reeling over some personal disappointments in our lives. And the author of the article said this, disappointment is nothing but a premature conclusion, causing you to stop reading before the story's end, making you abandon your hope in God and enfeebling your ability to pray. Take that to heart. Disappointment is always a premature conclusion. It's stopping reading before you get to the story's end. And that's the problem with God's people in Isaiah 40. They're, they're living like the story ended in chapter 39. Like that's it. But Isaiah says in chapter 40, oh no, there is way more to this story than you're seeing right now. And God fast forwards his prophet's vision into the future when the exile in Babylon will be over and God's king will come and he will lavish his people with glad tidings of comfort and joy. So if you're brooding over the bitterness that's in your life right now, would you give Isaiah 40 a chance to reshape your expectations? If you're harboring thoughts of resentment about your life, resentment about the people in your life, resentment over yourself, resentment toward God, would you consider the possibility that you're making some premature conclusions? And would you let God speak to you and tell you through this chapter that there's more to the story than you're currently believing? If you are living right now as if God is distant and aloof and uncaring towards you, would you let his word breathe new life and hope into you today? Wouldn't it be wonderful this Advent season to stop resenting God and start delighting in him afresh, to really trust in who he says he is? If you're fed up with the world, fed up with people, fed up with yourself, God wants you to know from this chapter, he's not fed up with you. Even if you've rejected him, he wants you to know he hasn't yet rejected you. 
You may have stumbled around in this world and gotten battered and bruised by your many falls, but in Isaiah 40, God is rushing towards you with his arms open wide, and he's saying, I want to carry you. I want to hold you close. I want to breathe fresh hope into you. He wants you to abandon the premature conclusion that all is lost, and he wants you to experience a new chapter in the story of your life. He knows you're a mess. He knows that we're losing hope in this world, that we're disgusted with ourselves. We're afraid that disappointment is going to become the controlling narrative of the rest of our lives. So here's what he's doing in Isaiah 40. He's gathering his messengers. And in verses one and two, he is commissioning them to bring the good news of comfort and joy into the disappointment of his beleaguered people's lives. That's what's happening here. Verses one and two show us the main thing God wants his people to know about the intentions of his heart toward everyone who will believe in him. And here it is. God wants us to know no matter how bad the news of our life is right now, God has better news to follow. He wants you to know that. He knows, wants you to know that no matter how bad the news in your life, in your world might be, there is good news to follow the bad news. Even if you're the cause of all the bad news in your life and you know it, God wants you to know that the bad news of your life doesn't need to be the end of the story. Just listen to the, the tone of his voice in verse one. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. That's not what we expect to hear from God when we're wrapped up in disappointment. We sin and we suffer for it. And we think that must be where the story ends. We think God's going to leave us there to wallow in our misery. We're expecting the worst from God. We, we expect if he speaks at all, it's going to be with a harsh tone. But God says here, oh no, oh no, your sin doesn't need to be the end of your story. I want to minister comfort to you. And so he gathers these messengers. It, it, you remember the King James Bible from Handel's Messiah. Comfort ye, Comfort ye, my people, says your God. He's speaking to this, this group of messengers who are going to go and proclaim to his people that God wants to comfort them. That even when we've forsaken him and haven't acted like his people at all, God wants us to know you're still my people, says your God. And, and when we have wandered far off and been carried into exile Far away in Babylon, God wants us to know in verse two that we are still Jerusalem, the people among whom he will dwell forever. And then in verse two, he speaks tenderly like, like a loving bridegroom who's wooing his bride back to him because she thinks she's so ugly and that he couldn't possibly cherish her. God says, oh no, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. And here's what I want you to cry. That her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you hear what God is saying here? God is saying, it is possible 
to live now and forever in the comfort of knowing that God's judgment of your sins and your failures is already in the rearview mirror of your life. We sing about that in the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that the judgment is past, that fear of hell is gone. When it says her warfare is ended, it's speaking of an appointed period of hardship. God does bring hardship into our lives, sometimes to refine us, sometimes to chastise us, to discipline us for our sins. And that discipline is never pleasant. It's painful. But it's also not permanent. It's only for a season. It's only for a good and gracious purpose. And God doesn't take pleasure in inflicting pain. Even when we deserve it, God is not harsh. He is not cruel. He doesn't like to give spankings. He doesn't abandon us when he disciplines us. He's with us in the hardship. And he makes sure that it's not gonna last a moment longer than what we need. So God says, it's over now. It's over. We can get back to enjoying each other again. And then God says, speak tenderly to her and tell her this. Her iniquity is pardoned. That word iniquity is a word for sin that kind of addresses the perversity of our hearts. How we stray so quickly, how we take the good gifts of God and corrupt them and pollute them and turn them into perverse things. We're iniquitous. But God says, that's pardoned. Or as the NIV puts it, her sin has been paid for. (laughs) How can that be? Isaiah saw him in the temple, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He cannot just overlook sin. He cannot pretend that he doesn't see it. He doesn't treat it lightly. But he uses a word here that speaks of a sacrifice that has been offered. And that sacrifice is sufficient to cover the sin that has been committed and to satisfy the holiness and justice of God. It's been paid for in full. It's finished. And then this last phrase is amazing. But it can be confusing too at the end of verse two. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And if you're wondering, does that mean that God must be punishing her twice as much as she deserved just to make sure that the sin is covered? I can imagine we could read it that way. But that would be going totally against what this verse is saying. She has received from the Lord's hand. It's speaking here of a gracious gift that God is giving. And what is this gracious gift that God is giving? He's giving a double cure to sin's malady. God doesn't merely pardon us from our guilt. He doesn't merely get us off death row. Tim Keller put it like this. If a condemned murderer receives a pardon from the governor and is freed from prison, it would be pretty exciting to get out, wouldn't it? 
but you'd suddenly realize there's just this huge cloud over your life. Everyone would be saying, isn't this this, that guy that did that terrible crime and then he got pardoned for it? No business owner is going to come up to you and say, do you want to work for my company? No father is going to approach you and say, you want to marry my daughter? No, you're that guy. Yeah, you got pardoned, but you're still the one. You're not accepted. You're not liable for the bad record, that's true, but you don't have a good record either. So when God says you've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins, he's telling you, I'm not just giving you barely enough to make sure you don't go to hell when you die. I'm not just canceling your guilt. No, I'm doubling up on my grace towards you. I'm going to clothe you in the robes of righteousness. I'm going to give you the perfect record of Christ's obedience. I'm going to accept you and I'm going to welcome you and I'm going to dignify your life with glory and honor and I'm going to wrap you up in my arms and I'm going to carry you close to my heart. You're not just pardoned. You're precious to me. You're my beloved. That's what God does for us in the gospel. Wouldn't you love to live the rest of your life knowing that the judgment you deserve to face for all your sins and all your failures is already behind you? That's past. And the rest of your life and your eternal future is going to be filled with God's presence. Wouldn't you love that? That's what God is offering you in the gospel. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he died on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for you and for me. He poured out all the judgment we deserved on his son so that our iniquity could be pardoned. And he took all the righteousness that Jesus earned through his life of perfect obedience. And he said, now I'm going to make that perfect righteousness freely transferable to the account of every single person who will put their trust in him. And that is the good news that can transform all the bad news of your life. Your life might be a train wreck right now, and you might have caused it. But don't cling tightly to your disappointment with your life, with, your, with others in your life, or with God. Because disappointment is a premature conclusion. Disappointment is refusing to listen to the story of the gospel. God is saying this story of your life does not need to end here with this train wreck. There's a whole new reality that he's inviting you into through the good news of what Jesus has accomplished. And God wants you today to receive this good news of comfort and of joy. But God knows that even after we receive this good news, we're still going to have to deal with a lot of disappointment in this world. He knows that we're still going to face a lot of hard things. So notice in this passage, he doesn't just give us the good news once in verses 1 and 2. He follows up on his assurance of comfort by sending his messengers now to drive the comfort of this gospel deep into our hearts. And then he sends us to spread this wonderful message of comfort and joy widely throughout the world. That's what he does in verses 3 through 11. And imagine not just 
one florist showing up at your door with this bouquet of flowers and this message of comfort, but three florists with three bouquets. That's how earnestly God wants us to receive this message. That's how lavish his comfort is to us. So in verses three through five, we hear the first messenger. And and the, the message he brings is that God's king is coming. When I read verse three about preparing the way of the Lord in the wilderness and making straight in the desert a highway for our God. It reminds me of when I visited the Havens back in 2013 when they were living in Morocco. And we went on this long drive up into the northern part of the country. And as we drove along north, I noticed the roads were getting nicer and there were Moroccan flags lining the the highway and there were soldiers all over the place and And Patrick told us what was going on. He said, up in the city of Tangier, they've made a new port, a new shipping center, and the king is coming soon to visit that port. And so the whole country is going out to prepare the way for the coming of the king. They're they're lining the highway to welcome him. And that's what this messenger is announcing in verses three through five, the king is coming and we need to get ready for him. He's going to come, notice in verse three, into the wilderness and into the desert of our barren and scorched lives. And every heart needs to prepare him room. Now we know from Luke chapter three that John the Baptist became this messenger crying out in the wilderness and he was preparing for the way for the king who we now know his name, Jesus. A king like no other. A king who comes not only to rule, but to serve. And and verse four describes in poetic terms what Jesus does when he comes to earth to reign. When he comes, he's gonna launch a massive renovation project on this broken down universe. He's gonna gonna fix the infrastructure of the universe. Forget about build back better. This is glorious what Jesus is gonna do. He's gonna build a better world, a whole new world, spiritually, morally, relationally. He's gonna lift up the valleys of our depression. Every valley will be lifted up. He's gonna flatten the mountains of human pride. He's going to level the playing field so that the hostility that makes us stand over one another and crush one another and abuse one another is no longer in our hearts. And he's going to smooth out our rough edges and make difficult people learn how to live together now in a community of love. That's what Jesus is going to do with this broken and sinful world. He's going to restore what sin has ruined. He's going to fix what's broken. He's going to make all wrongs right. And throughout his life, that's what our King Jesus did. He made the blind to see. He gave the deaf their hearing back. He caused the lame to walk. He healed the sick. He met with sinners and ate with them, turning them into forgiven friends. He welcomed the outcast. He lifted the lowly. He redeemed the rebels. He gave hope to the despairing. He has come. The word became flesh and he pitched his tent among us and we saw his glory 
And what did it look like? He was full of grace and truth. The king has come. And listen, friends, this world is broken. But the light of the world is now shining in the darkness and the darkness can't extinguish it. The darkness tried to extinguish this light when he died on the cross. But what did he do? Bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And he reigns at the right hand of the Father. And his kingdom is spreading in the world today in the midst of the darkness. And one day, this king of glory is going to return. And verse 5 tells us what it's going to look like when he comes again. And I can't get this verse out of my mind. I keep thinking of Handel's Messiah here. I've been whistling it, humming it. And the glory, the glory of the Lord. And it, it's going to be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. That's the verse we put on our Christmas card this year. The glory of Jesus is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. No one's going to be able to ignore him any longer. No one's going to take the name of Jesus in vain. No one's going to belittle him or diminish him. He's going to be magnified in such brilliant splendor that every eye will see him. And he will be marveled at among those who have believed in him. And he will be the terror of those who have despised and rejected him. That is the future just over the horizon of our messed up world. And if you trust in Jesus, that's the glorious future you have to look forward to. So I want you to think about everything that's causing you disappointment in your life right now. And if you're in your 50s or older, I'm sure there's a list that you could just, just rattle off pretty quickly. Things that are disappointing. What if you started seeing your current disappointments as just the cover page to the story of your life? And what if you started seeing verses three through five as chapter one of the great story that's going to go on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What if you realize this is my future? This is what God has in store for me too. And we can trust that no one who hopes in Jesus will ultimately be disappointed because of what it says at the end of verse five. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what do we know about the mouth of the Lord when he speaks? We know he's going to keep his word. And that's what the second messenger cries out in verses six through eight. The second messenger comes and he is, he is to announce, he is to cry out that God's word will not fail. God wants us to be confident in the comfort he's bringing us here. He wants us to know it's not a mirage in the desert. This is real. This is the true oasis of our souls and we can bank on it because of what this messenger in verses six through eight says. Now, at first, when you read it, it sounds kind of strange. I mean, what is this messenger telling us in verses six through eight? He's telling us that human beings are unreliable. You can't count on people. They're gonna let you down. <laughs> is that good news? Is that, is that helpful to hear? Well, yes, actually it is. Because it's reality. If you believe what he says about humanity here, it will keep you from becoming bitterly disappointed and disillusioned when people let you down. 
Because why were we expecting people to be our ultimate hope to begin with? These people have been let down by their king Hezekiah, who only seems to care about peace and prosperity in his lifetime. And we can get bitter over the people in our lives who make promises that they don't keep and who fail to follow through on commitments they have made. But God is telling us in verses six and seven, none of this should shock us. None of this should disillusion us. Were we expecting mere mortals to be the source of our everlasting hope? Can anyone bear that weight? You're setting yourself up for great disappointment if you're looking to human beings, even good people, good leaders, a spouse, a friend. You got to remember who they really are. What are they? They're flesh. God uses this, this common word, this, this word that speaks of our transience, of our frailty in verse six to describe humanity. We're flesh. And what are we like? We're like grass. We have a beauty because we've been made in the image of God, but our beauty is fading because we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So as we sing in church, as summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. So we should not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but we should boast in knowing Christ. We should rejoice in our Redeemer and make him our greatest treasure and look to him as the wellspring of our souls. We should boast in him and in no other and be satisfied in Christ alone. Why? Because of what it tells us how different he is to every human being in your life. In verse eight, his word will stand forever. And he is, in fact, the living word of God who endures forever and who gives everlasting life to those who trust in him. This, this messenger is telling you, listen, all hopes based on humanity are going to fail. But if you bank your hope in the word and promise of God, you are building on something that is constant, something that is enduring, something that is never failing. Isn't that good news? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, so now if we're confident in this comfort that God is bringing to us through the gospel, God wants us to do something now in verses nine through 11. He actually wants us to join with the messengers and to make this good news known to the world around us. He wants us to become the messengers now. And here's the message we make known in verses nine through 11. It's the message of a God who comes to people in great power and in tenderness. In verse nine, he says, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, God's people, herald of good news. It's, it's like we sing, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Lift up your voice with strength. Don't hold back. Don't be ashamed of this gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And if I could paraphrase the end of verse nine, say to the cities of the Fox Valley, behold your God. Say to South Elgin, 
and St. Charles and Geneva and Batavia. This is what God is like. He is not a God who stands far off. He is not a God who keeps his distance from our pain and from our disappointment and our failures. He is a God who has mercy on our misery. He is a God who comes to us in the middle of our mess. And he has the power to make all wrongs right. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God, this is the precious word, he comes, he comes with might. And when he comes, his arm rules for him. In other words, he's got the power to do everything he purposes. And then it says, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. And I want you to notice it's his reward. It's his recompense. So what could that possibly be? We're going to see next week that he's got this whole world, this whole universe in his mighty hands. How could he who holds the stars find anything in this world that could possibly be a reward to him? Well, the answer is in verse 11. Look at what God also has in his arms. He doesn't only have power in his arms. He has people in his arms. He has sheep in his arms that he's carrying close to his heart, that he's leading gently through the dark valleys of this life. It's the flock of his hand, the sheep of his care, the precious ones for whom he shed his own blood to obtain. This is his reward. This is his treasure. He loves us. And that's what makes the message of Isaiah 40 so very personal. So very tender. God's not just coming in verse five to reveal his glory to all of humanity in general. He's also coming as a shepherd to tenderly care for, to guide, to provide for, to protect his children who entrust themselves to him. Yes, all flesh will see his glory together, but there are particular people who are going to see his glory personally who are going to come to know him as the one who is full of grace and of truth. I want you to know this precious savior, king and shepherd today. I want you to experience his tender care for you. I want you to know that you're being carried through the valley of the shadow of death, through the disappointments and pains and griefs and betrayals and heartaches of this life by one who loves you so tenderly that he, the shepherd, became the lamb who takes away your sin and who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy all the days of your life. If you would like to follow Jesus as your shepherd, your savior, I'm gonna invite you to join the church right now as we pray this prayer of confession together. If you're asking Jesus to be your shepherd today for the first time, I'd invite you to tell someone afterwards, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I wanna trust in him, I wanna know him, and we'd love to pray with you afterwards. Church, as we prepare to feast on the abundance of what our savior has provided for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Let's join together acknowledging the truth about ourselves and our need for him. Let's say this together in unison. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own ways 
and the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for being the shepherd who became the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Through your sacrifice on the cross, you have ended my warfare, pardoned my iniquity, and by your grace, I have been cleansed of my sin and clothed in your righteousness. Please gather me as a lamb in your arms. Carry me close through the disappointments and trials of this life and gently lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Jesus, thank you. Amen.